Radcliffe, some people go on vacation to Southern Europe. You decided to go to Vodka Central and get into your roots in the Western, no, Eastern part of the globe. I'm happy to be on here with you, though, and you've taken the time to chat with me, do a little recap. How you feeling, man? So I guess I always used to think of Poland as being Eastern Europe, but it's really not. It's Central Europe. <laughs> but it's east of you. That's definitely true. And it's <laughs> it's definitely east of the center of gravity in Europe, which is mm. um, France, Germany. But, um, but you're in a heart of Central Europe, heart of Central Europe right now, and not a drop of vodka in sight, I can, uh, I can say. <laughs> oh, well... No beach for you, not the traditional vacation that I would have Hey, expected. no, man, man, i got to put you right on so many things about Poland. There's some great beaches here. The northern coast is stunning. Oh, yeah? And You've been going to the beach? Sandy beaches, yeah. Um, that, and I, the do weather... I see a tan? Do I sense you see a tan a... on you? No, you just see a better zoom filter. That's what it is. No. Um, <laughs> but, um, but the other thing, I mean, you've got this in Germany as well. Like, there's a big lake culture here and like do you go to lakes in germany oh man uh, so i was just kayaking with a friend the other day and uh it was a not the sturdiest kayak and i had a great time tipping that over every couple strokes oh, nice. <laughs> so yes that's a long way of saying we do have the lake culture yeah because um yeah i guess the rivers near where you are a bit fierce the rhine and the oh yeah um and the danube um hey did you survive the flooding by the way uh so i was i was about an hour and a half from where the flooding was happening and but we didn't get touched we it rained a bit but luckily nothing happened i'm also kind of in uh on the top of a hill so flooding would happen in the valley that's below us Mm. if it were to happen but yeah nothing Nothing major on my front. I'm doing all right. You're doing all right. And we've come to talk about the latest season, season seven, huh? Anything you want to shout out from the beginning? I, wait, actually, sorry. I'll, I'll just say the main thing, I'll take over. Just uh, don't mind me here. The it's main like, where thing. Where are you going? Wait, wait, <laughs> where, where are you going to land the first punch? Uh, for me, I think what has stayed with me the most since recording this season was Sarah Williams talking about how no one should be fully faithful or put all of their trust into these different maps or statistics. And yeah. really, I am highly skeptical. Anytime I see any data visualization now, highly skeptical of all of it. And she went to great lengths to explain how she makes sure that her different data visualizations or maps don't have bias. But I really wonder how many others are doing that. Okay, that's good. So, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely... I definitely picked up on that in the in the episode. I mean, I've got I guess a um, a background in 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 data analytics, and I used to run a data analytics company. So visualizations were like what we did, and you know we had a team of people 
who are thinking always about how do we present this data in the way that most makes sense. But it's not about it's not about just presenting in a neutral light. And I think it's the point that Sarah was making. It's also about how do we tell a story? And stories have an agenda to them. And that's the simple nature of so if you're if you're re- working for the head of you know production in a in a in a manufacturing business and and you're trying to create that person a dashboard so that he or she can take to their leadership to show like how is production looking over time if that's your client then guess what you know you're going to be presenting the visualization the data the dashboard in such a way that is telling the story from that perspective and that story you know needs to be looking good and i guess for me now working in the esg field um where we talk about watermelons you know companies that look green on the outside but as soon as you scratch the surface they're not actually very green at all um you know it's that same it's that same question you know rather than in internal reporting how do how do we visualize data in order to tell a story internally what we're now doing is looking at the data companies are presenting externally and saying, you know, are you telling <laughs> a fair and accurate story? Um, but she raised some great things. I think the, um, the example of Booth uh, and his visualizations of, you know, cholera outbreaks, I think it was in London in the 1800s, um, and how, you know, the kind of anti-Semitic undertones perhaps in his his own prejudice were kind of coming out through his work um, and then how was that was used I thought that was particularly powerful I noticed um, that with one thing that I seem to be quoting so much with others as I talk about this is how she made a point of saying when you come out with these statistics or when you come out with this data go and check with the affected people or go and check to make sure that data is actually true on the ground level. I think she called it like ground, ground testing. Ground, ground, test. ground testing. Ground yeah. testing. Yeah, something like yeah. that. And it, for me, that was huge because it's like, yeah, then you not only have this data, but you can you can double check just to make sure you're not telling the wrong story as you're talking about these stories. And it is so true. Like you are trying to make this data more accessible and you're trying to tell a story so that someone can easily digest this. And so what kind of story are you telling and is it true? Yeah. And no, I, I thought, um, so I haven't read her book. I should, I should guess caveat with that, but I thought the, uh, the seven principles, I think she called it of like, um, data visualization. I can't remember what she called it, but like definitely like, uh grounds testing was like one that kind of came up very strongly uh as i was listening i thought this made a lot of sense so hopefully we can hopefully we can link in the show notes to her other principles but i, I thought um yeah i, I it, it was it was one of the most um um i think one of the most responsible mature approaches to the question of, of data visualization um that i've heard so um, but like, don't get me wrong. Like, database is um, is is enormously powerful in terms of communicating yes. messages, making change happen. But you've got to be so on guard. And I remember I used to run a session for my team 
in my former life, uh, in fact, it was like day one of our induction plan. I wanted to have like, you know, give me, give me someone's first day with a company and you can have the rest of their career. And, and I ran a, um, uh, a workshop on data visualization and the, the resource I drew upon most heavily was a website called WTF.viz or viz.wtf. I can't remember which round it is now. But basically, it's a website devoted to bad infographics. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. And sometimes it's just like clearly plain wrong. You know, like in a survey of you know, people who thought they were, um, I don't know, fans of... Um, uh, ice cream, you know, 67% said they were and 42% said they weren't. It's like, uh, hang on a second. <laughs> How does that work? Um, so there's this stuff which is just plain wrong. But there's also stuff which you have to kind of do a double take on and say, well, what's wrong with this one? And and usually it's like some very basic sins, like, you know, they've cut an axis and they've cut an axis in such a way is that they they show enormous dramatic change between a time series from one point to another point yeah exactly. uh, where actually the reality is there's like no change at all i mean like if you were to plot your body temperature you know your blood temperature you know the jump from like 37 degrees to 38 degrees is like dramatic if you if you make that the axis of that you made that the scale but in reality it's like still within the bounds of of what's kind of you know okay mm -hmm. whereas actually like you know you should that, the range of values should be like you know 35 from like a hypothermia kind of perspective to like 42 which is like brain damage fever and so a fluctuation of 37 to 38 is like okay it's maybe you should take some action, but it's not necessarily something that's going to kill you. And I think that's the, um, that's the big responsibility that uh, people in that space um, obviously owe. And yeah, no, it was a great, a great uh, point you made. Yeah. And then I, I found it really funny. I guess it was fate testing me, but after I interviewed her, then I went over to a friend's house and he had just ordered the book, How to Lie with Statistics. And it, it arrived when I was at his house. And so I was thinking, and I remember she mentioned, I can't remember if it was before or after the conversation. I don't think it was when we were recording, but she told me, yeah, check out that book. You're going to love it. So I have since delved, dove, I've dived into it. <laughs> I've delved, I've de whatever the word is there. Anyway, I know you, you've got a lot of thoughts on a few of these other episodes, especially the Kill the Robots one. We threw something out in Slack that people got back to us on, and you had a certain theory about killer robots and why the EU regulation was not involved in military and all of that, and we got some great responses in our community Slack, but I think we should go over that and talk to talk about that a little bit yeah, yeah sure so i can't actually remember where where this was but I'm, i basically made the same point that wanda made in the in the episode with you which is um why has the european commission 
taken military applications of AI out of scope. And it's like something which, you know, anyone who read the draft, I mean, I think it, it must have struck everyone as being a an odd thing to call out, particularly given it's one of the few areas within the AI community that we can pretty much all agree on. Um, and it's also one of the few areas in wider society, left and right, kind of everyone agrees on this point. I, I, I remember the number, but um, someone has to fact check this, but uh, I think every bit, every study has said that um, the vast majority of people support red lines being drawn around killer robots, military applications of AI. And so given all of that, it just seems like a very strange thing to, um, to, 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 to take out a scope. And I made this point at an event, like not long after the European draft regulations were published. And I kind of said, like, I wish that hadn't happened. And basically someone called me out on it and said, it kind of, I highlighted my lack of understanding of European constitutional apparatus and you know and I think they made a very fair point and I I'm not protecting this person I just simply can't remember who it was the name of the person but I very very clearly they made this articulation that actually the European Commission you know and the European Union more generally is you know what it's there to do is to facilitate trade and it's there to facilitate frictionless trade within the the the, uh, the Union and what it's not there to do is to speak to other questions which are actually for uh, member states you know sovereign sovereign states to to um and, and, it, and it's an open question as to whether the european union takes that further step i mean obviously monetary union was like something that the european union decided to take and you know a lot of member states joined uh the euro um, and this question of a military union is 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 an open question. And there's, you know, there's, I'm sure there's arguments on both sides of that debate. Um, but the point is, it's just simply, it's not within the gift of the European Commission to speak to military. It, it, they would be going beyond their capabilities, their competences. Mm. And if they kind of didn't make that clear in the draft, then actually they might get, they, they themselves might get some pushback when it comes to the next process, the parliamentary process, the democratic process. Um, because as is the case with law, anything that's kind of not spelled out in black and white is open for interpretation and ambiguity and other things that lawyers are gonna fight over. And so they kind of need, the point is they needed to say that, just to make it very clear that, that they don't have authority to speak it's to out that. of scope. Exactly. And so with that in mind, it makes perfect sense um, why they did it. Um, but it. But then it begs a second question, which is why the heck have member states try to take that initiative forward? Um, so I think, um, you know, I think that, that remains the job to be done here. Um, but I thought, I thought it was a great episode and I thought it was a great opening to the season. And um, uh, it, it's like, it was pretty, I don't think it was pretty articulate, the justification for why, why this is a matter of policy, which everyone in the AI community should be, should be thinking about. Yeah. If we can't agree on this, then what can we agree on? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I really love how Richard talked about, and I mean, Wanda also, it's like, the idea here is, 
this should be looked at such as chemical weapons are looked at or atomic bombs are looked at, you know? Well, landmines. I think landmines, that was, like they said, yeah. Yeah, like I forget, like, but it's interesting, like 30, 30 or so countries ha haven't signed up to the uh, Treaty on Landmines. Um, but despite that, like um, practically speaking, they don't even like even though the United States, for example, is not a signatory on the ban on landmines, the United States doesn't habitually landmine, you know. So it kind of it acts as a deterrent even on those countries that haven't signed up to the treaty. Exactly. Um, but I think for me, that's kind of you know when you think about like I don't know maybe maybe I'm speaking on a subject which I'm fairly ignorant of, but I um, to me when I think about landmines and you know, you would say if you were to say to me, like, which countries would like definitely have signed up to a ban on landmines, and those which definitely have not, I would have put the United States on the list of. Well, yeah, of course, they're like a Western liberal country. Of course, they would have banned landmines. So you know, they would have been the first. They would, they would probably be the ones, one country that instigated they the charge. It. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, and so I guess maybe we could expect the same on a ban on the use of AI in in. Um, but I think I guess what 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 you know the episode with 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 Wanda and Richard was more about um, you know specifically about not the use of AI in military context, which I think is a much broader scope of things. And I think they make the point that actually there's some very good uses of AI uh, potentially within um, military uh, context, but it's specifically about the decision to kill. Um, whether that should be um, delegated to a machine. Yeah. Um, and I guess, um, you know, the problem with the landmine, I guess, is, is, is that, you know, once it's been set, there's kind of no human control anymore on it. And that's what makes it such a horrific weapon. Um, you know, once it's out of the wild, it's, 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 it's very difficult to stop. Um, and, I, and I guess that's that's the thing where we can we can easily I think um, yeah yeah and I'd like, if anyone disagrees with that I'd love to hear the other side of that debate I would love to hear it mm. because I think uh, there may well be a very articulate answer as to why why we should allow such things but um, I think I think I think Wanda made this point really starkly. Uh, she said, "If I if I get this right, she said, regardless of who you are, regardless of like your status as a as a civilian or a, or a soldier or a terrorist, no matter how what is, whatever level of this despicability you as an individual have, your right to life is something that is difficult to argue." against but if you're if you are targeted if you if it's been decided that you should die then a machine should not make that decision only a human should make the decision and of course there will be some people who say that no one should make the decision only you know god uh, should make that decision we 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 have no rights to make that choice as humans but i think the question of a machine making that decision i think i think that was a point of principle, and I thought that was a very powerful point you made. Yeah, and so something that I think about now and that has been coming up quite a bit in my mind lately is the idea of how maybe we've 
been too hasty in this whole putting AI out there and trying to use it in all of these different applications. And I'll give you an example, right? So when we use facial recognition and the different companies that are using facial recognition, or really I think a lot of the time what's happening is a company is contracting a third party that has the facial recognition software and they're basically outsourcing or, or buying an app, buying that software from a company. And you see in the news all the time just how incredibly wrong facial recognition can be. All the time we just see that. And maybe that's just because we need to be more vigilant when it comes to the new applications of AI. And so it's good to call out AI when it is being biased. Or maybe it's just because the software is not as advanced as we think it is. And so just that, which I read something yesterday about how a woman got banned from a bowling alley because they were using facial recognition software and they mistook her for someone else. And surprise, surprise, this woman was uh, black. And so you, we know, you and I both know, there's tons of bias in these data sets and in the facial recognition software in general. Now, if you couple that with, it's not just giving suggestions to a bowling alley of who they should or shouldn't allow in their establishment. Now it is no human in the loop and that machine gets to decide whose life continues, that's where it starts to get really scary for me. And so the whole idea of how not advanced we are with AI, yet you see so many different companies trying to use it in so many different ways and advance it, it makes me think sometimes, and I guess the real question that I grapple with is, are we putting this AI into places too soon? Is, do we need to bring it back and say, all right, this needs to stay in the incubation phase? Or is it something that we can live with? We live with a few of these misjudged or bad predictions if it's pushing the envelope of innovation. Yeah. So the short answer is, yeah, <laughs> we are. We are implementing AI too soon um, because it isn't perfect. Um, and it's a long way from that. And there's a whole bunch of research that needs to be done. There's a whole lot of data that we don't have to train models in an unbiased way. Um, okay, but also so I think it's a failure of governance and I, I think that's the kind of the easier answer is actually and that's why you know trying not to make this a plug for ethics grade here but it's why we think that things like red teaming are so important because that's how you mitigate some of these some of these risks you have somebody or a group of people in your process that's there to call out like how can this go wrong 
and you don't have to listen to them like but you well you do have to listen to them but you don't have to follow them i guess is the point here but you should document what those risks are and ideally you should be transparent about those risks you should publish those you know those 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 questions and um you know i think i would argue that those things should be in the public domain so that when things do go wrong you know the the decision can be improved next time around and for me it's like abundantly clear if you're using facial recognition that you've got exactly these types of risks and so if you're the bowling alley or if you're the software company selling the software to the bowling alley um you know the reason that this happened was because they don't have the right governance in place somebody somebody in charge of both of those organizations should have thought more carefully about the governance and that and that's why this stuff needs to be called out so strongly i remember oh. like 20 20 years ago uh i used to run a a different technology company, sort of IT, kind of most basic level kind of computer repair. You know, we did like the most advanced stuff we did was like networking for local businesses. We had a client um, which was like a convenience store, grocery shop. And, you know, he, he was an independent business, had like a chain of grocery stores. And, you know, they had the, the biggest problem was shoplifting. Um, and, you know, they operated in, you know, parts of the town which weren't the necessarily the most salubrious parts of the town. And, yeah, they had kids coming in and it was kids. It was, you know, teenagers and young adults came in and uh, it's not violent crime, but it was still, it was mostly like alcohol and high value items were stolen. And they're like super, I remember this guy was like super, the guy who ran it, was super like paranoid about shoplifting. And he invested a fortune in CCTV. And over the time, it was quite a sophisticated system where with like an ISDN line, and people remember what ISDN lines are, but like, you know, a very low bandwidth connection back to his home office, he could kind of get a kind of highly pixelated real-time view of all of his like retail empire. <laughs> it's like massively over-engineered for the task in hand. And I... You know, and we 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 supported. You know, we supplied the equipment and the and the cables and the support when it went wrong. And I often thought that a much more effective solution would just be having some photographs up behind the cashier's desk of, you know, the people who were known troublemakers. Uh, um, because that's an that's you know that in itself is a deterrent for it's not social. it's not that you're yeah. going to be standing in the queue and someone's going to go oh you're that guy or you're that woman you know you're the baddie it's going to be the fact that you as the person who has perpetrated a previous offence you know you're not going to want to stand there buying your weekly grocery seeing a picture of yourself <laughs> behind mm -hmm. the counter so it's a kind of you know it's 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 not it's not the fact that you're going to be more effective at catching the people is that you're going to be more effective at stopping them from coming in and causing trouble. And I just thought the low tech, the low tech solution there would be much more. So I wonder, twenty years on, those those that chain of stores still exist. Um, I wonder whether my former client has has facial a much more sophisticated <laughs> facial recognition system. But um, but yeah, it's a problem because you know that part of the UK where I'm from is predominantly white. And, you know, I think if, if there was a, 
facial recognition system in there, I would be very worried that it would go wrong. So this is the other part of the question that goes around in my head is, and it, it kind of can be paralleled with right now what we're going through in, in COVID and trying to open back up and get back to normal. And you hear the argument of COVID zero or living with COVID, right? And I'll bring this back around in a minute to how this relates to AI ethics and the conversation we're talking about. But in my mind, I think the COVID zero idea has shown that it's not going to happen anytime soon, right? So when we're looking at AI and how it's being used, for me, I'm starting to feel like, okay, we're not going to go to like a point where we have facial recognition zero. We have to learn to live with facial recognition. And so what does that mean? What are the implications of that? And how can we better have the user experience or not even the user, but just have the ones who are affected the most, how can we make sure that that is something that is guarded against? And I really like your idea of data governance and making sure that this is all about governance and really holding someone who is like a bowling alley or like your 7-Eleven down the street from where you were at, if they want to put in some facial recognition, there should be some strict, strict ways that that gets or yeah, implemented, right? It shouldn't just be like, oh, this you can put that in, no worries, and it's a free-for-all. Yeah. So here's where I disagree. So I, I was waiting I was waiting for you to trigger me somewhere on that. <laughs> you mentioned the C word. And uh -oh. um, and I was like, oh no, this is gonna <laughs> this is gonna take us down a rabbit hole. So I'm glad you kind of steered back to facial recognition there because I think um, I think there's a big difference between that duality of like COVID zero or living with COVID. There's a big difference between that and facial recognition zero or living with facial recognition, which is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, COVID pandemics, you know, these are like complex things to model and we just don't know what's going to happen you know a few weeks from now what well, the one thing we've learned i think the last year and a half is that we just don't know what the future is going to bring and we all hope for outcomes and i think we all hope for slightly different outcomes we all have a different view of the future which we believe is the most realistic pragmatic most hopeful most optimistic most pessimistic most conspiratorial i mean we all have our own opinions on how this is all going to pan out but at the end of the day we just simply don't know because we've got no reference points to draw upon. You know, we've never had a situation like this at the scale that we've got, given the massive interconnectivity that the world has today and reliance on global trade, transportation, technology. There's just so many factors which are just make this an impossible, an impossible thing, which is why I don't envy anyone in power, because they're not going to make the right choice for everyone any of the time so it kind of sucks to be but you know people like boris johnson wanted to be prime minister so kind of you know good luck to you my friend because you got what you wanted <laughs> um and i think that's probably the, the the 
the most satisfactory most satisfactory aspect of of, uh, of of politics is that when you see a politician that perhaps wanted wanted power for the wrong reasons and now they've kind of got it and we will all be writing and reading the lessons from this for eternity. But anyway, back to AI. We can yeah. totally get back to facial recognition and zero. We just have to like ban the stuff. Um, and I think, I think you know, as we lived in a world where there was facial no facial recognition, it was a world like it was called 2011. 90s, yeah, not even the 90s. It wasn't even the 90s. Um, and so I think there's a lot, a lot of very, very bad use cases. Um, Do you see and... any good use cases? Do you see anywhere it's like, oh, that is a really solid use case and we should, it makes all the other ones worthwhile. Like all these bad ones, yeah, yeah they suck. But if we have this really good one, that's the light leading us on. Do you see any like that? So I'm going to stick my neck out here. No, is the answer. I don't see any good ones. Um, but that's not to say there aren't. That's just to me to say I haven't thought of a, an application which is flawless or risk-free or where the risks are tolerable. Um, but that's that's you know that that's 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 probably a somewhat ignorant point. I haven't thought through the use cases sufficiently, but. Uh, the way you the way you mitigate this is you as I say you have a red team you have a group of people inserted into the design process or the purchasing process or the implementation process who are there to call out the risks who are there to think through how can this go wrong what, how can this bite us in the ass and their job is to call those things out and make a strong case for why this can go wrong and then leadership. The chief digital officer, for one, you know, better role, should be there to then decide should this be given the green light or or not. Well, do you and, think that and that red team would be the bowling alley would have to have that red team, or it's the third party software that's providing the bowling alley with this? Yeah. So I mean, I think um, I think this, the software company absolutely because they're in the line of business, they're making this stuff. They should be thinking very carefully about who are we selling it to? Are the controls in place? How can this go wrong? Have we built the damn thing to a sufficiently high degree of of acceptable, you know, behaviour? Um, uh, and 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 I and I think surely if you're that company selling the software to the bowling alley and you have a group of people saying, well, you know, have we checked? That we've got a representative sample of data. Have we checked through the consequences of this going wrong? I mean, I'm surely you would make the call that this is just an inappropriate use of technology. Tech for tech's sake, I would argue. Um, if you're the bowling alley, then you could maybe say, well, you know, you're in the line of business of, you know, polishing shoes, you know, stacking up pins, making sure the balls are in the right order at the end of the night, providing, you know, French fries and arcade machines at a good price and keeping everyone COVID safe, you know, is really facial recognition, digital ethics, top of your priority list or top of your skill set? Probably not. Um, so, you know, I think that's why we have regulation to make it really clear to people that, um, you know, some things are okay and some things are not okay. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, what is a bowling alley doing with facial recognition? Like, what are the upsides of that anyway? But that is for a whole nother conversation, I think. I, that And that's why yeah. it triggered in my mind, like, what? 
what are the, why do we need a bowling alley to have facial recognition software? That just seems like it is it two and two didn't add up in my head. So, but anyway, there's a in my version of the story. So in my version of this anecdote, it's a, it's an ice skating rink that's in my mind, and it's and it's a teenage girl. That's the one that's got banned. But I'm just realizing there was there was a um, there was a film I saw recently where that was exactly the plot where. Um, some dude was having like a, oh, what was the film? This is going to really annoy me. I'm going to have to, I'll tell Rhea tomorrow and I'll, I'll ping you. But there was a film where this guy goes to a, a bowling alley and he, and he just makes an absolute mess of things. But like he, he was having a great time in his head. And then, but then it kind of cuts to the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation was he got like arrested for causing, causing a ruckus. And, um, the big Lebowski. Oh, it wasn't a bit no, of okay. It was um, no, something more recent than that. Quite. But anyway, I'll um, I'll find it. I'll, I'll let's yeah, not actually, home and I'll, now um, that I I'll checked, you, know. uh, you are right. I got the story confused in my head. So it's not a bowling alley. It's an ice skating rink. And but still, it's kind yeah, of same point. Like yeah, we'll, exactly. Yeah, facial anyway, recognition. Like moving on. I want to talk to you about someone who I feel like you are kindred spirits with. Someone who does not like big tech almost as much as you. And <laughs> you know exactly who I'm talking about that we interviewed this season. No, well, there's a few. There's a few. Yeah, no, I, I was thinking of Adam, actually. Um, um, but yeah. Um, yeah, where do we start? <laughs> where do we start? I just want to get your, um, your all around. I mean, I feel like who, he was preaching to the choir with you somewhat but I, he was he was going on about some dude he really did not like on youtube and i had no idea who this person was ha alan jones alex Adam jones jo he's a whole alex jones yeah he's a big uh figure in the u.s right. and he just spews conspiracy theories that's basically the only thing that yeah. comes out of his mouth are conspiracy theories got it got it and he's okay. got a wildly popular youtube channel and i think maybe he might have been on fox news before i can't remember exactly or he was part of like one of these radio stations that's very right-wing so anyway yeah keep yeah, going okay. so i didn't what know who, who that was but i mean I, I kind of figured broadly where it was going um so 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 i think the problem the problem here is something somewhat different which is i guess two things like one is that we um what the tech companies need to feed ai they need data right so what we what we've been what we've what they've constructed is a paradigm where they require content and it doesn't really matter what that content is it can be like really high quality entertainment like that's informative like this podcast or it can exactly. be like nice whatever else on the spectrum of, of possible content. They just need content. And until they get to the point where they can create machines to create content that's indistinguishable from human-created content, they just need us to create as much shit as we can and fill their data centers with it. There's lots of reasons for that. But one is like their business model depends on more content equals more data center fees. I mean, there's that, there's that kind of argument that the whole kind of content industry, the... Well, people call the attention economy, but I call the uh, 
the distraction economy. It's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's the more content that exists, the more money they make. I mean, simple period just on that. But also because you need this stuff in order to train models. You know, this guy, Alan Jones, whatever he's called, like um, he's, um, you know, it turns out that some people like listening to what he, he says. And there may be like some aspects of the data feed which you can mine to actually realize that if you say x y and z wearing a red shirt with a picture of a mountain behind you then videos like that trigger certain types of people and you can feed them more videos and get them to spend more time on youtube so the you know, having the content creates the data bread, breadcrumb trail that gets the algorithms trained that helps them build the profiles to help us be more distracted and that serves the metric time on site multiplied by number of users. That's really what these organizations are geared up around. So I think that's the problem. It's not necessarily this one individual or having a having content moderation policy. It's the fundamental, which is we've kind of found ourselves in this really screwed up place where there's a lot of people, you and me included, who spend a lot of our time just generating content. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or kind of for the sake of it, yeah. or consuming it. And if, no, I say there's those like you and I. We are definitely guilty of creating content because we know it's good for SEO. It's good for like the more content you have, the more people. And there's other people who consume content almost exclusively. And of course, yes, we consume content as well. But broadly, there's content creators and there's content consumers. Um, and I think I think if you break down the world into that framing, I think you can kind of see it for what it is. And, um, and I think Adam's point was then, you know, if you're mindful about this, then you, 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 you may change your reaction to it. But I think there's another point I would just kind of make on this, which is around moderation. Like, how do you stop the really, because it turns out if you publish a video of something despicable, like, you know, a live mass shooting has happened in New Zealand, then people, people's first reaction isn't to complain to Facebook and say, you must take this off, or to contact the police and say, get this video down now. People's first reaction is to share the link to somebody else, which means somebody else watches it. And then the algorithm sees, oh, this is popular. Exactly. (laughs) And then 12 million people watch it. Um, And some of those people will be scarred for life because, well, for obvious reasons. Um, So how how do you prevent against this stuff? And I think... Noah kind of touched on the answer briefly. And I was like, oh, come on, just like a little bit more on this. And I think the answer here is there's a very big difference between the social media platforms um, in terms of their attitude towards content moderation and other platforms like Wikipedia, which kind of don't have this problem at all. And that is um, the kind of the default setting is that everyone has the right to publish whatever they want unless they breach the kind of the rules of the platform and of course the difficulty the platform has is like figuring out what are the rules you know should we allow a nipple on facebook like no oh but if it's art well yeah but what if it's in this context and what if it you know it suddenly becomes an impossible question so that's the that's the difficulty that platforms like facebook have and they've recently had to kind of backtrack on that decision um, in, in, a, in a particular instance. And so, um, so content moderation is a, is a really difficult problem. But the, the fundamental default is you have the right to publish anything you want unless you breach the rules. Whereas platforms like Wikipedia, 
Um, you know, if I go on to this Alex Jones guy's webpage, did I get it right that time? It's Alex, yeah, yeah not yeah. Adam. Alex Alan. Jones. Adam, I love Alex. that you don't know who he is. That's amazing. <laughs> I have no idea. And I could Google it, but I'm like, yeah, you're just yeah, going to get into another rabbit hole. So, um, uh, but you sent me something recently on Slack, and I'm like, oh, man, what's this crap you're sending me? What, what was that? I don't know. What was that? Finish your point, and then we'll get into that. <laughs> you, sent, you sent me down another rabbit hole, which I was like, what the hell is this, man? Just trying um, to figure you. Yeah, beard styling skills for beginners or whatever it was. Um, well, T, T, <laughs> T ceremony 101. Um, so that was Adam. Um, the, yeah, if I go on Wikipedia and if I edit this dude's page um, to something that somebody else doesn't like, you know, it's going to get reset immediately. Uh, and it's going to be, so, so built into the system is this feedback loop that kind of continuously arbitrates towards a kind of an incentive structure that kind of keeps things to fact because that's the thing which people aren't going to disagree about so there's no incentive at all for me to go onto this guy's wikipedia page and deface it because if i invested that time in writing some nonsense about him then i can be pretty sure that someone else is going to remove it or correct it very very quickly afterwards mm. And I think um, they were kind of touched on this as if we had that default in social media. You know, if I had the ability to see some tweet that you published or some post on Facebook or a, a LinkedIn article, and if I were to go on and say, yeah, this is just misinformation, disinformation, filth, I disagree, whatever, and I had the ability to delete it, prevent it from other people's feeds, then what would that do? It would A, create a massive dis incentivization to create content and i would argue that's probably a good thing by and large um and secondly it would keep some of this stuff from propagating some of the really bad stuff from propagating so the kind of new zealand shooting the first person who watched that who went what the heck would have prevented and pushed the button to say take this down now it would have been off the platform there would not have been a problem so online harms, it staggers me how we're in 2021 and in, in the UK, the government is still like arguing about, you know, still like policy papers being put forward about how to deal with online harms. It's freaking easy to deal with online harms. Just set the default into a different position and force the social media companies to comply. And it would achieve two aims. It would, one, it, was, it would just get rid of this distraction economy that we have. And two, it will keep people safe. Um, it will create a different problem, which is what are we all going to do with our free time that we're not spending scrolling through mindless TikTok videos or whatever the people do? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's a lot more nuanced than that. And there are, effectively, we have that with the report button. You can report any video or yeah, any but what does it do? post. But, what, but it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. It goes into a queue of people who are paid, who are sitting in Manila in the Philippines, paid to watch this crap. And the problem with those people who do content moderations is they like watch. Yeah, that's fine. So, you know, I reported your video because you pissed me like off. You. So I, I reported something which was like, you know, Demetrius playing the guitar. So like they're looking at this and going, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. They're watching something else. There's nothing wrong with that. They keep doing this. And then suddenly they see something horrific. 
Yeah. And it's just that kind of, yeah, this is really, really unhealthy. And so, of course, it takes time for that person. Of course, they're using machine learning to, to triage this stuff, to try and find the most likely stuff that's going to be, but still, like a real human being has to kind of moderate this and say, this is, dude, the default setting's in the wrong place. The faster we, as a society, agree upon this, um, the problem the problem is, is this paradigm. Like, we, 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 we kind of buy into the Zuckerberg um narrative too much that we all have we have unalienable rights for free speech and this unalienable right to have a platform to broadcast this on you know if you really want to kind of write your conspiracy nonsense mr alex jones um set up a website you know that's what the web is great for create your website but don't expect you shouldn't um platforms like twitter or facebook or linkedin or others shouldn't be propagating the content um and and you know i have no ability to take down his website and i think i would argue that's probably the right thing we need some sort of super regulator to do that but the 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 barrier to creating content is already set quite high at that point um but the social media platforms the default setting is the problem well it's really interesting how you talk about right now with the report button and someone could flag me playing the guitar because they don't like it and they've been they think, oh my God, what a hippie, whatever. But wh why is that different than what you're talking about, right? Where you could say, oh my, this is horrific, take it down. And then you just get people that are taking down each other's stuff because the simplest thing triggers them and they don't like it. And so they take it down. Because I think that's, um, that creates a very different incentive structure. And I think, you know, Wikipedia... There isn't a page on Wikipedia that's devoted to Demetrius Brinkman and like the creative musical genius that he is. Equally, there's not a well, not page yet. on Wikipedia. But, not yet, no. Yeah. But there's not a page on Wikipedia that's devoted to Demetrius Brinkman. What a despicable person he is. And um, again, not yet. And there never will be. And there never will be. But my point is, is that you're not the incentive structure isn't there to kind of um, do those things unless a certain threshold has been reached a threshold of 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 um and so by creating that kind of threshold you actually that in itself moderates the content um so wikipedia does not have a kind of misinformation disinformation problem in the same extent i'm not saying it's perfect but it's a hell of a lot better and the reason it's a lot better is because that default option is, is set in the right place the reason that what i what i'm suggesting is very difficult to swallow is that you know, Facebook would simply not exist in the form that it does now if that was the case. You know, if I could, if I had the power to prevent your video from spreading, you know, you would, I'm not saying that, if I, if I can take my arguments like the next step, it's like there should be that kind of right to review, but the onus of that right to review should be on the content creator, not, so in, in that situation where I didn't like your video and then I hit the, remove button, you should have the right to go to Facebook and say, hey, put my video back. There was nothing wrong with my guitar playing. And Facebook should have some rules by which they adjudicate that and say, no, actually, Demetrius playing his guitar is not offensive in any way to anyone on this planet. In fact, we quite like it. We're going to let it back on the platform. But that's where, that's where it should be, not this way around. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So... As I'm not saying it's going to be an easy argument to win. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I still think it's quite nuanced, and there are some places where 
I disagree, but that's for a whole nother recap session. And we're coming to an end here. Anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> you haven't talked about tea enough. Um, yeah, I've got a beef with you, dude. Like, when am I going to get my guitar intro? Wait, why? <laughs> when have you been seeing guitar intros? Where did you get that? Well, your, your little love buddy, Aranchik, on the ML Ops. You know, oh. he gets like a freaking like <laughs> serenaded into the ML Ops uh. community, and I'm like, oh man, like. Nothing you want me to, to do one here. for you right now? You want me to get the guitar? And... No, no, I, I need Next. more tea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next episode, I'll give you a full intro, or maybe I'll cut some in post. I'll put some guitar there for you. If, if yeah. it really no, makes no, I'm you just, happy. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm just teasing you on this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, what else? What else? What else? We not covered. Um, we spoke about no. We spoke about Adam. Oh yeah, I mean, like Adam, maybe like mindfulness and um, and tech. I mean, I think I think there was so much stuff in that that we should probably devote to another another episode. Mm. But like, um, uh, I guess I guess I would kind of somewhat. I, I I agree with like some really key parts of what he was saying. Certainly, having kind of tech-free zones is like a really important thing. Um, but I think I think there is a. He kind of says, "I'm not making an argument for reduction in tech uh, or, or coming off tech," and I'm like further on the extreme than him than that. And I'm and I'm certainly very aware that my position is not sustainable for everyone. Um, but I think um, I think there's things like you know spending spending time as a family. I think one of the examples he gave is like you know we spend time as a family watching a Netflix series or watching. HBO. And I guess I was hearing that and thinking, but what about spending time as a family playing a board game? You know, there's, there's, I think there's a qualitative difference um, when you put technology into the mix and it mediates the experience. Um, and I think, I think there was something else I would have maybe just wanted to bring out in the conversation with him about, I think, the good that you can have when you take the tech out of the mix. Um, and I guess the thing I wanted to ask him was, like, you know, the tea ceremony. Like, you know, he was talking about the intricacy of it, how he needed to use both hands and how... And I was thinking the kind of the, 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 the difference there between, like, you know, his argument, well... I have to be kind of present in that moment versus the kind of time of my family where we can be as a family mindful and watching an HBO series. I was like, well, that to me is like the equivalent of saying, well, we're just going to get a tea machine. You know, you can have your tea. The, the quality of the tea output could be the same. It could be better. It could be the most awesome tea ever made because it's been crowdsourced from all the data of everyone who's ever drunk tea in their lives. And it could be the most awesome tea every single frigging time. So we'll just get a machine. <laughs> <laughs> to make the tea for you, dude. To me, that's the difference between like board games with your family versus HBO versus tea or no tea machine. Does that, does that make sense? I... Yes. And I yeah. agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. There are so many ways that we can live life without tech. I think it is a little bit lazy for us to default to doing something, whether it is watching a movie or... Uh, 
or playing <laughs> Scrabble on our phones, it still is using tech. I do understand, though, that for some people, that's the first step. And that's what you're, you're trying to just take that first step as opposed to doing it and going cold turkey and being as totally. extreme as you are. No, no, totally, 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 totally. And I think, um, I think that first step is the most important step because, you know, the observations he had, the observations he shared, um, yeah, they were like, they were like really spot on. Um, the amount of times that we just reached for device as a default because we just want to eliminate boredom. Yeah. And actually, boredom is a great opportunity for daydreaming and so much other rich creative yes. space, which you only value when you re experience boredom. And I don't look at boredom in the same way as I did. I definitely went through that phase of trying to eliminate boredom with my, my Blackberry. My Blackberry was the first. That was back when you were trying to eliminate it. You're dating yourself there. Well, like, you know, just the BlackBerry was just gave you that constant, I have the ability to respond to email like a machine. Mm -hmm. And that was my default. I was in a restaurant waiting to order and my BlackBerry would come out and I would, you know, keep one eye out looking for the you know, person serving and the other eye on what was on coming crackberry. in. BlackBerry. Just, yeah. Just like last thing, um, the, uh, the convo you had with um, uh, the recruiter, Lady whose name escapes Kelly. me, Kelly. 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 I should know better because I've, I've known her like 10 years or so. We'll cut that part um, out. <laughs> that's okay. Gotta keep this real. Gotta keep this real. Um, yeah, that was, that was really interesting. And I think um, I was listening to that, and I guess what I heard was she was saying, yeah, there's, there's an aspect to what a recruiter does in terms of seeing beyond the CV, seeing beyond the keywords, which is totally totally can never be replaced by machine or it's, it's not see i cannot see how a machine can do that aspect and when i heard that i was like that's the danger zone that's exactly it and i totally get the value that people like her bring um totally because i think the difference between a good recruiter and a someone who just does the function is 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 absolutely massive and having been you know, hiring people and being on the other side of it, you know, I think I, I totally get the value that she brings. But at the same time, you know, that industry is is high value. Like, you know, people in her roles charge, you know, not just like 10% of a fee for, for people. They, they, you know, it's the upper end of that is like, you know, 30, 40%. Oh, wow. And so, and the data, you know, platforms like LinkedIn have such a huge amount of data about what makes careers successful, what makes people, and they're collecting so much data on training and, you know, I think that's totally a role that is in the danger zone. Really? And so... By being what? Danger zone of being eaten up by I mean, AI. Totally. I think it will be increasingly difficult for, um, for those roles to justify... Um, like, but she's totally right. Like today, where we are right now, if you go on and ask for like a whole bunch of candidates against some keywords against a job description, you're going to get a lot of nonsense. But my my bet is that will flip within a very short amount of time, four or five years, and we'll be in a position where actually the algorithm 
is pretty good. Yeah. Day one. And of course, you know, notwithstanding bias and discriminatory aspects in that, I think, um, you know, will people choose the algorithmic hiring approach or with the people, you know, contact people like Kelly and, and, and is, how do you differentiate the human touch? And I guess, um, yeah, next time, next time I talk to her and, and, and hopefully next time you talk to her, yeah, that's something we can talk more about because I think that's that in every role, not just the recruiter's role, in every yeah. role, it's like, what is the human touch? What, what bit of this, I mean, her point was like, I'm just better at what I do because I can see beyond the keywords. And I guess what I was trying to kind of think about was what aspects of what you do is better because it's a human. And I guess that comes back to wonder and the, and the killer robots piece. Why should it be, why should machines never press the kill button? Because that should be something which the human touch aspect, even though it's kind of grotesque thinking about human touch in a kind of killing sense, but the human, you know, knowing you're going to be executed by, by a machine or knowing you're going to be executed by a human, I think I'd rather know I'm being executed by a human because at least I'd feel that there's been some sort of recognition of the enormity of what they've done what the machine has done, you know, that process. And I guess there's certain aspects of so many roles where it's the human touch that's so important. It's, it's that, that's the essence. What I'm, I'm curious, what's the, is there an aspect of recruitment? Um, because if there isn't, then it's fair game, surely. If, 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 if we can imagine an algorithm that can be just better at finding good matches for people and careers and roles, then let the machines take over as soon as possible, please. Well, um, I really like this question of what is the specific value that a human brings to this that a machine couldn't? And really asking yourself that in any role that you're in, whoever is out there and they're wondering, am I going to need to retrain myself for a different role? because I get eaten up or my job gets eaten up by, by tech in the next coming years. I think about this when I play music and I have all of these different AI music generated uh, songs come out. And it is so hard to define when I play music and I put my heart and soul into it. It's very, I guess it's very abstract to say what the human touch is that I bring to the music because I feel like it's my heart and soul and something that is beyond what you can describe and you can't really touch it with words, but it is there. And, and that's why, and that's why your intro to, to David was so touching. <laughs> You really want an intro? We'll see. Maybe I'll give you one here now. <laughs> so that, but that is what I think about. Like in every role, how are you putting, how are you bringing your heart and soul into it or whatever you want to say? Because I remember I interviewed somebody and I was like, oh yeah, so robots or AI is never going to be like humans because they don't have a soul. And, you, and he was like, I don't believe in souls, but yes, I know what you're getting at. <laughs> so, but I, I think of it that way. Whether or not you believe in souls or or what, but it's that the heart and the the part that is so much deeper than just what data can give. 
right? It's, it's, it's the same as the T. It comes back to that T example. Like it, the point that Adam was making is it doesn't. He's not doing the T thing because the T is better in by any objective standard. In fact, he could probably make a shitty T and still have a great experience. You know, it's about the, the experience, not about the output. And I think that's the risk with the data mindset is we look at the output it's and we don't look output. at yeah. the process. And actually yeah. some things, the process is important. Other things, the process is not important. Like um, I don't care about my Apple, Air, whatever they're called, pods, pod, buds, <laughs> headphones. I don't care about them because like, I know that blood, sweat and tears went into making them in a mine in South, Af South America or South Africa in some Chinese person was like slaving away on a production line creating these things and someone was putting it into a box. You know, that doesn't bring any difference to my appreciation for this, this, this product. Um, a machine could do that. In fact, you'd want a machine to do that because it's mm -hmm. going to be a, of, of, of um, you know, actually all of those functions that went into producing this were things which those people probably only did those jobs because of necessity and not because that was their calling in life. And you would hope that those everyone in touch this thing in a supply chain would get the opportunity to find that thing that is more purposeful if, if the opportunity could exist. And so there's things like that, which we should eradicate human labor. And there's other things like tea ceremony where, you know, so we should do D. We should have an episode of tea and you singing songs to I'm me so in i'm so in i don't know how many people would actually listen but i'll do yeah, it good with point. You if you want good point maybe we should just stick to the format that works yeah <laughs> but i want to say one thing before we go about cool. coming back to the idea of being bored and how important that is <laughs> so just in case any listeners have reached this far through the episode <laughs> you you know that the boredom the that word, we have boredom. induced yeah <laughs> while you have been listening was for a reason it was for a strategic reason hopefully you've come up with some new ideas to implement in your life and you have those shower thoughts or those shower ideas but no i'm like honestly when it comes to being bored and not distracting yourself I found it fascinating because I went on vacation for the first time since COVID in basically it was the first time in a year and a half, a little over a year and a half. And when we were coming back, when I went on vacation, I was very, very far away from the computer and the phone. I did do a little bit of work while I was there. I'm not as hardcore as you. So I was doing some interviews and I was doing some uh, looking at my phone a little bit, but I would say compared to my normal usage, I was at around 10%. And what I noticed was when we were coming back and we were in the airport coming back home, I still was on that vibe of not looking at my phone. And I remembered earlier times of how much I enjoyed the airport because I could go and just people watch. And yeah. since I wasn't grasping for my phone or I wasn't even occupied with it, I figured, okay, whatever, like whatever fire happens, I don't need to deal with it right now. I'm still on vacation. And the amount of pleasure that I got 
in people watching again for the first time in I don't know how many years since I got my first smartphone, probably it was invigorating. Really, I had that moment like, and the funniest thing was that I remembered how much I loved to people watch and how I had totally lost that tradition or that habit. And so that is a story of myself on boredom and letting yourself find other things to do than stare at your phone. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And I think, um, yeah, that's the hack. That's the hack, I think, that the tech industry has found is that um, actually we can be quite easily distracted by podcast subscriptions, you know, news feeds, notification, yeah. notifications, email, you know, these things grab our attention that creates the distraction. And actually, you know, we need to, we need to find that. We need to fall in love again with boredom and people watching and all of those things which make us so, you know, it's crazy to think like, you know, the old world, you'd have been in an airport, you'd have people watch. It's a very social thing. You're observing how do other people interact with each other. Some people you would be, you know, your inner voice will be, Creating mocking, stories for, yeah. Creating stories for, like, that, maybe that person's a secret agent, you know. Yeah. Um, you see somebody you know, running, some you're like, wondering wow, where they're I going. Wanna be, I want to yeah. be that guy, you know, like, <laughs> you have that whole thing. But instead what we do, we just, we just look at a device and we consume what the algorithm gives us on TikTok or YouTube. And, mm. yeah, we need to reclaim the human. Anyway. So, on that note. On that happy notes, yes. <laughs> Thanks, Dee. Maybe, maybe we got these people that are listening we boredened the heck out of them well at least at least we can be sure that i know two people will be listening which is the video editor in rear so <laughs> here's a shout out to you both i'll uh, see you later charles this was fun thanks Steve. take care Bye.